0: Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known, that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children, but tell them to the coming generation. The glorious deeds of the Lord and his might, and the wonders that he has done. Those are the first four verses of Psalm 78 the first 39 verses of which are the psalm appointed for today, Tuesday, June the 15th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. We continue our study today in uh, the books of 1 Samuel, Acts, and the Gospel of Luke. And so we're moving on in the story of Samuel, his origin story. a <clears throat> miraculous birth is an answer to prayer from a, a woman who has been barren for many years. Who um, goes to the temple, pours out her soul, and then receives the blessing of God, uh, the the fruitfulness of her womb. So he has he has blessed her and made her productive. That's exactly what that word bless means. Really, um, we can say bless. I'm so blessed, and all this kind of stuff. But but the reality is, is it's 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 being being blessed is a supernatural um, addition that allows you to carry out the commandment of God, for instance. And so it's sort of like when Jesus says, I'll be with you even to the end of the age, then he's given them a commandment to be fruitful and multiply, to go out and make disciples of all nations. And so what he's doing by saying that I will be with you to the end of the age is that's the blessing that they get that enables the mission of God to spread the gospel all throughout the world is aided by the Spirit of God. Otherwise, it's not possible. And so blessing is a supernatural provision to enable, and that's the best way to, to say what the word bless means. So if, if we look here at the, the continuing saga of Samuel's birth, we get Elkanah, the husband of Hannah, the mother of, Samuel goes up to the Lord, and we know that he goes up every year. And so if, if they got pregnant, and what we're told, after they returned from the last visit to Shiloh, which is where they worshipped, then, then we know that this baby is truly a baby at this point. And, and he reminded her of her vow, but she didn't want to go up. And so she said to her husband, "'As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever.'" O'Connor, her husband said to her do what seems best to you wait until you've weaned him only may the Lord establish his word it was up to the husband the the blame for failing to pay a vow landed on the husband of, of a woman who had made a vow he was responsible for ensuring that that vow be made she was under his care and he was responsible for her that sounds like an awful thing to people today, it seems like, but, but that's not what it is intended. It's not intended to say the woman didn't. She lacked the ability or responsibility. Um, no, it, it explained the marital relationship, and that the man was responsible for the woman in every single way, and, and if she took a vow, it was as though he took a vow. He could renounce that vow, but Elkanah did not, and they could only renounce it at the time the vow was taken. And so that they had to be a partnership and a team in this. And so that's what's going on here. He says, do, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him only. May the Lord establish his word. In other words, that you will ultimately do that. And I know that's not going to be easy because it's your firstborn child. And we can make a sacrifice and redeem that firstborn child. But no, you've decided, and I've allowed that because I didn't renounce your vow i loved you and trusted you enough that that even in this i would say yes and so he has affirmed that vow that she made and it, and it's an enormous vow right i mean it's just i can <laughs> i can think of a guy who who i knew way back when who they were on a plane going somewhere, and the, and the plane hit a lot of turbulence, and his son started, he was afraid because the turbulence was that bad, and so the son starts cry, crying out, "Ah, oh, please, Lord, help us, help us. If you save us, I will become a priest or a pastor. I guess it was probably in his tradition. And So uh, is that the kind of vow we're talking about here? No, she intended to fulfill that vow, and he intended for her to fulfill it as well. So she remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And we're not sure exactly how long that would have been. He would have probably been two or three or four years old, something like that, though. And so then when she'd weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought them to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And so they've redeemed him, but also given a thank offering for him. That's what all the the detail of what they brought was was saying as this was brought as a thank offering the peace offering before the lord that's the reason you bring the wine so she said oh my lord as you live this is to eli uh, as you live my lord i'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the lord for this child i prayed and the lord has granted my petition that i made of him therefore i have lent him to the lord as long as he lives he is lent to the lord and he worshiped the lord there and Hannah prayed then, and we get this long prayer of Hannah's, which reminds, should remind you very much of Mary's prayer, upon the uh, after the Annunciation, after she's told that this child that she's going to bear after being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, and and it's a very similar prayer. It's about reversal. It's about poor becoming rich, rich becoming poor. It's about the Lord's work in raising up. And she begins with, my heart exalts in the Lord, my horn is exalted in the Lord, my mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. So she sees this as a salvific event, and, and there's a reason for that. It's not just simply because she can no longer be provoked by her rival wife, as, as Peninnah is sometimes described. It's not that at all. What it is, is to say that she has now been allowed to fulfill this commandment to be fruitful and multiply when she's had this child. And so the curse has been removed from her. The stigma and the stain that was on her has been removed by the birth of this child. And so she proves that that was what she wanted more than the child itself by giving him to the Lord in the same way that Abraham has to do with Isaac when he takes him up onto the mountain and give him to the Lord. But the Lord didn't want a child sacrifice which required the child to die. Here, he, he accepts this child, this sacrifice of this child by the mother. He accepts it as though it, it for a reason, and, the, and that reason is, is that he has a purpose for this young man. He needed him. And he needed him to be in this place because, remember, he's the one who gets the prophetic word about Eli and his sons a little later. And we'll cover that in a couple of days. But this, the rest of this prayer, beautiful, beautiful prayer, has to do with the, the reversal of fortune is probably the best way to say it. And then she sees all this as the fulfillment and the promise of God's reversal of fortune, not just for herself, but for all humankind in the same way that Mary sees it. As the birth of her child as that reversal of fortune for all humankind and so then we were told that Elkanah goes home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest and that would have been in Shiloh and so we begin the, the story proper of of Samuel now and what kind of boy will he be and there should have been all eyes on him based on the fulfillment of God's promise to to that family particularly to Hannah in the gospel today what we see is now the scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, and the very hour is right after he had um, given that parable of the vineyard and the wicked tenants. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. For they, f- but they feared the people, and listen to the to what the plan is here, and, and and it's an interesting plan. They watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said. And then here's the important part. So is to deliver him up to the authorities in the jurisdiction of the governor. So they feared the people. And so the, the plan wasn't for necessarily for them to try him by themselves. They needed him to do something that would provoke a civil trial, not a religious trial, but a civic, civil trial. And, and that way they could wash their hands of the entire thing. And so what they wanted him to do was speak against Caesar at some level. And they can get him for being an insurrectionist like Barabbas was. And so so what they do is they're looking only for something that they can deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor, and it's because they fear the people. And so they wanted to sort of bypass the religious trial because they knew they couldn't get away with it. And so they're looking for something they can do to get him a civil trial for insurrection. So they asked him, teacher, we know you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Well, that's flattery, huh? Pretty good. Pretty good start. Um, is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? In other words, is it is it okay for us to pay taxes and to celebrate Caesar by paying those taxes, to give tribute to him? Are we bowing the knee and recognizing him as king if we do that? Is that okay? Can we do that? And, and it seems... To be a really, It's a really good question, in fact. It, it, it's a very good question, because it, it, it is at the heart, in some ways, of Judaism. But, the, but Jesus has already answered that in another way, right, with Peter. When he was asked why they didn't pay taxes, and he takes him out fishing, because Peter essentially lied about whether they paid taxes or not. And so they go fishing, and they get the coin necessary to pay that tax. And so he, he's already done that. But are we recognizing Caesar as king? By paying taxes to him is the question. And he perceives the craftiness, which, like I said, it's a good question. It, it, it's, it's a, it was well thought out. But then he says, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? You could read that another way, too. You could read it as whose image does that coin have on it? What image does that coin bear? And they said Caesar's. And he said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God the things that are God's. So that coin belongs to Caesar. It doesn't doesn't mean that I'm doing anything other than giving him back what belongs to him. He, he, he owns that money, that coin, because it has his name on it. But God owns the one who bears his image as well, and that's you. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So it's a double-edged sword there. He's answering them directly about, is it okay to give tribute to Caesar? Well, of course it is, as long as you're giving Caesar the things that belong to him, the things that bear his likeness. But you're supposed to give your life to God. You're supposed to give your life, everything about you, to him. Those coins belong to Caesar's. Those things pass away. That's not going into eternity. You go ahead and get rid of that now and give it back to Caesar, and you, you won't face any problem with that. And then they were not in the presence of the people to catch him, what he said, but marveling at his answer they became silent he shut them up that was the end of that I mean he's too clever for us we don't really have a good answer for that but he's also confronting them with a the reality this is that the thing you think is truly important is your money but what's truly important is you and how are you doing with that are you giving tribute to the one in whose image you've been created what's the most important thing the most important thing is your life because you bear the image of God. And, and so the most important thing you will ever possess is life. And in, in the Acts lesson, the, they come to a decision. Um, remember what they said is they, they devoted themselves to prayer. And so you've got the disciples uh, who are now commissioned but not yet empowered to become apostles they, were, they had come together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And they had all come together and they were, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And so in those days, Peter stands up among the brothers and the company of persons in all was about 120 people. And so he goes on to say that, that brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to them who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted, allotted his share in this ministry. And then uh, Luke tells us what happened to him, and that is that he acquired a field with a reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. And then he shows scriptural proofs for why this had to happen, and it ends with and let us let another take his office and so they they see there's a gap there and that somebody needs to take Judas's place in the apostolic band and so one of the men who've accompanied us here's the qualifications that they've set for this the person to take his place one of the men. Who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day He was taken up from us? One of these men must become a witness to His resurrection. They had to have seen everything in their eyes. It can't be second hand for them. And this is before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We're still in Acts one. The Holy Spirit is poured out in Acts two, and so that's what they're saying. The qualifications are for anybody who takes. Who's going to take the place of Judas? And they put forward a couple of different guys. Uh, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show us which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, I don't have a problem with Matthias. He was probably a good man. He had been there through this whole time. He had followed Jesus at a, a, at a, a little different distance than the others, but he had been there, they believe, from the beginning. They saw He saw the baptism of John all the way up until he was uh-huh. taken, Jesus was taken taken up. And so that that's the point is to choose somebody like that. Well, th- they don't know yet what's getting ready to happen with the Holy Spirit being poured out so that the Holy Spirit can then I- I empower people throughout at least the next 2,000 years to believe no less than these men themselves believed. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. That's the last time we hear of anybody casting lots to choose the new person, at least as far as I know. I don't know how they do it in the Vatican. But they choose him in this way, and we never hear from Matthias again. Like I said, I'm sure he's a good man. But God had chosen the one who was going to take Judas's place, and that man's name was Paul. And it's clearly Paul who was chosen to do that. Now, we don't know what he saw. We don't know if he saw the baptism of Jesus. We don't know if he saw the crucifixion. We don't know if he saw Jesus in the resurrection. We have no earthly idea. He may have. It's possible, certainly. He's the right age, and he would have been in the right places to have seen these things. So the question becomes, is, is, is that are we relying on the Holy Spirit and all these things, or are we relying on our own devices and, and we're interpreting things in such a way that, that we're making them human? Rather than something that God's doing, what are we doing? Are we ordaining people that we think look good and will make a nice presentation, or are we raising up people who who God's raising up? Are we are we recognizing what God is doing, or are we are we, are we recognizing the right things? And that's kind of what Hannah's prayer makes us want to ask. Right, is is that if if we believe in the reversal of all things, then then are we looking in the right places? Or are we looking at what's shiny and, and beautiful and wonderful and all that? Do we really believe that God reverses things? And are we giving him the tribute that he deserves? Because in the way that Hannah did, right? Because Hannah gave him, gave the Lord the, the thing that she prayed for and the, the gift that God gave her, which was that life, that, that life of her boy Samuel. And so Jesus raises that same question again. What is it we're giving God? Do we think the most important thing we have to give to God is money? Or do we understand that the most important thing we have to offer is ourselves? And if this is a God thing, then, then nothing can stop it. And are we looking in the right places and in the right way?